welcome to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, the austere religious scholar who will be your host in this roundup of the past week of fake news. And I'm recording this a day early. You're going to get this episode a little bit earlier than normal. I'm going to have it posted Friday morning. I normally record these on Friday. But I have some special stuff going on this week. My son's getting out of military training boot camp. And I'm going to go pick him up at the airport on Friday. And so I need to get this done a little bit extra early this week. So if there's any late-breaking fake news that breaks on Friday, I'll have to tell you about it next time. But for this time, uh, I I think there's still plenty to talk about of what happened, at least as of Thursday of this week. So we're going to be looking at some news headlines from the past seven days. And uh, some of it is just some updates on a couple of news stories we've been tracking over the past couple episodes already. But for this first one here, I want to talk about uh, a former Secretary of State, Colin Powell, who passed away this week. And uh, as far as I know, you know, good man. I mean, I was I was a kid at the time where he was Secretary of State, so I can't say I remember a whole lot personally from his tenure in serving our country. Um, I mostly just know what I what I read about as as history records, and so I don't have personal experience really of anything I can comment on with Colin Powell. But he was a Secretary of State, and he was part of the leadership of our country, the United States of America, during the Iraq War and a war with Afghanistan. And all that that happened in the early 2000s. Like I said, I was a kid at that time. He passed away this week. He was 84 years old. And what he actually passed away from was COVID-19. And this has been in the news, uh, not just because a a famous person died, but also he was vaccinated. And uh, this has caused a little bit of a stir. The news media, I can tell, they were just really confused for the first 24 hours or so about how they wanted to report this, what their narrative was going to be on his death. Well, because first of all, it was a prominent Republican who died. So of course they, they want to get in some of their hit pieces when that happens. They want to talk about all the, the damage he did and the disasters he left in his wake and not always be respectful in how they comment on, on someone who died if if they were from the the right side of the aisle. So there was some of that going on this week, but then also there was some trepidation on how to report the circumstances of his death, seeing as He was 84 years old. He was vaccinated, but he died of COVID-19. Now, I'll say this. um, You know, at 84, whether you're vaccinated or not, something like COVID-19 is going to be very dangerous for you because you're in that that age range where uh, most of the people who pass away from, from that sickness, they do tend to be older people. So he's already like extra at risk. And I believe, I, I hate to say it because I don't, I didn't double check this, but I think he had some kind of cancer or something as well. So he had some other health issues going on. And so that made him highly susceptible to COVID-19, whether he was vaccinated or not. But the media, because they always have to have a narrative when they go about reporting things like this, they had to have some kind of, they had to, they had to comment on the fact that he was vaccinated and whether that played into his susceptibility to this disease. So Brian Stelter, genderless potato head over at CNN, uh, he wanted to be very, very clear that we should not rely on anecdotal evidence whenever we're covering or forming opinions on COVID-19. 
He said, you wanna be very, very careful to do that. You just wanna follow the data. You don't wanna look at what is called anecdotal evidence. That's whenever you just take one isolated story and you use that as your guide rather than relying on statistics and facts and data, general trends and all that. You always wanna look at a long range of data, not just one specific incident to form an opinion on something. You know, he pointed that out. Don't rely on anecdotal evidence, his words. And, and you know what, that's absolutely right. When we form opinions on something like coronavirus, we should not rely on anecdotal evidence. We do wanna follow this established science, which means research, studies, things that professionals have done to determine what is generally going to be true about this sickness. Okay, absolutely. Then explain to me why the media constantly <laughs> wants to pick out isolated incidents of uh, children getting sick in order to push the idea that children need to be vaccinated even if they're six years old and that children need to wear a mask all day while they're at school. Well, why is the media really pushing heavily on these stories about kids getting sick when statistically speaking, they are the least susceptible portion of the population when it comes to COVID-19? I mean, other than maybe babies who are even younger than, than a five to 11 year old child, the media really wants to focus on all these kids that are getting sick instead of just saying, you know, okay, but it is very, very few children who have like died from the COVID-19 um, in proportion to the whole population of the country and the, the, the demographics of who actually has died from the disease overall in this, in this country. Children are a very small number of that. Uh, like we mentioned a week or two ago, there was a New York Times columnist, uh, a writer, it actually wasn't a columnist, this was objective reporting, misreporting. She reported that hundreds of thousands of children had been hospitalized due to COVID-19. The real number was like 63,000. So, which again, sounds like a lot, but when you consider how many children there are in a nation of 330 million people, when you consider all the millions of kids that we have, uh, and it's, it's such a small portion of them who have been hospitalized and a really small portion of them who have died from COVID-19, that it would not be honest to look at the story of a child get sick or even a child dying from COVID-19 and saying that this is just what is normal about the disease. This is just representative of the data as a whole. Uh, I can remember back, this was like almost a year ago, but I can remember a year ago, the teachers unions were trying really, really hard to keep kids from going back to school. They were trying really, really hard to get teachers home. I remember they said Thanksgiving break, uh, let's try to have everybody back home again after Thanksgiving break during the school year last year because they said coronavirus was just so deadly. And they would run stories like this. I remember this from last year. This was November, 2020. I remember this because this happened in my home state. There was an eighth grader who tragically passed away in Missouri from coronavirus complications. And this was the headline in quotes, COVID-19 is real. Eighth grader in Missouri dies from coronavirus complications. But of course, first they put COVID-19 is real. And then they talk about this child who tragically died. And I'm not denying the tragedy of that. And I'm not saying that, you know, a young life being taken that young, that that's not a tragedy. You know, it's a very sad situation, but is it representative of the whole? Is it something that represents what's generally going on in this country that we have eighth graders dropping dead left and right? 
Now, that wouldn't be honest to say that that's representative. That would be considered anecdotal evidence. It's something actually far outside the norm that a 13-year-old eighth grader passed away from COVID-19. That is highly unlikely. There's, a, you know, when we're considering all the things that could cause a 13-year-old or an eighth grader to pass away, COVID is very, very low on that list. There's a lot of other things that are deadlier to young children than COVID-19. But this was front page news in my state. And I remember that the headline, I printed it off again to went, when I went back and checked, the headline said, COVID-19 is real, implying that if you don't want your eighth grader home by Thanksgiving break, if you want your kids to go to school in a public school instead of learning from home all day, then you must just think that COVID-19 is not even real. So when it comes to this issue of using anecdotal evidence, I can agree with Brian Stelter. We shouldn't look at what happened with Colin Powell, who passed away and was vaccinated. We shouldn't look at that as representative of all vaccinated people, that therefore all vaccinated people are still going to die with COVID-19, um, you know, that is not going to make any difference because it didn't help Colin Powell. No, we shouldn't look at anecdotes like that. We should look at the long range of data. I agree. But you have to do that for all. You can't just pick and choose what you're going to do that for. You have to do that for everything, both sides of the issue. So you can't take a story of a small child getting sick and report that as if that's just the normal thing going on. That's dishonest reporting. And I want to explain for just a minute more on what it means when you have anecdotal evidence, because news by nature is very anecdotal. A lot of times when you're trying to report a news story, what you do is you want to go out and find a human person and use them to tell the story. You know, it's really hard to tell a story about statistics. It, I mean, it's, it's just boring. People aren't going to read it. Um, it's not going to get them excited. But if you can take a picture of a real person, put a, a human face on, on a whatever issue and tell their personal story, that's a lot more captivating. It's going to draw a lot more readers. And so you, and you can do that with anything. I mean, anything, even if it affects 0.2% of people in the country, but you can find one of those 0.2% of people and tell their story on the front page of any newspaper. And that's going to get a lot of readers. News is anecdotal by nature, and good reporting is going to be anecdotal. But ethical reporting picks the people who are representative of reality and tells their stories so that you're not giving the public a false impression, so that you're not giving the public the impression that something is a big widespread problem when it's really not. Kind of like all the, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter crowd who got so geared up every time they see in the news that there's a, a black person who was killed by police. And sometimes in, the, in a lot of cases, uh, when it's a big news story, it might be an unarmed black person who was killed by police. I don't actually, I won't say a lot of cases. A lot of times they are armed, but there's stories of unarmed black people being killed and the news will make this their top story for days and get the public very riled up and act like this is a major issue that just goes on left and right all the time. When in reality, uh, the, according to the FBI's like statistics, there were less than 10, maybe less than, maybe t definitely less than 20 unarmed black men who were killed in 2019 for that whole calendar year. This was not some epidemic happening across the country, but if you would look at the news, well, they make it appear that this is something just going on everywhere all the time because they take those isolated incidents and they report that as like, as if it's representative of a general reality. That's not ethical reporting. So reporting is fine when it relies on a human story, when it tells someone's real life true story, puts a human face 
on an important issue, you know, that's all fine. But if it's ethical reporting, it's going to pick people to highlight whose stories are representative of reality. Otherwise, you're just trying to sell a false narrative. So, hey, I could agree with Brian Stelter over there at CNN. I could agree with him that we shouldn't rely on anecdotal reporting or stories to form conclusions about something. We should be taking a look at all the facts and data. Absolutely. 100%. Totally agree. Is that what CNN does whenever an unarmed black man is killed by police? (laughs) Is that even what they've done in their reporting on the coronavirus? Absolutely not. Okay, so that was item number one for this week. Uh, Just talking about um, that story about Colin Powell who passed away. All right, story number two. What I want to talk about is actually, I just want to give a little bit more information on something that I talked about last week because a little bit more has come out about Katie Carrick's new book. She has this new book coming out that uh, I think the title is Going There. And if you remember in the previous program, we talked about this. If you didn't listen, let me just recap what happened. Katie Carrick did an interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the Supreme Court justices. She did this interview in uh, 2016, I think it was. And this is when Colin Kaepernick started up his protests at the NFL. He was kneeling for the national anthem as a way to disrespect the flag and disrespect the country. He claimed that America was racist. As I was mentioning a few minutes ago, that America was just killing black men uh, all over the place, that police were just had free reign to shoot uh, black people all the time. And so he wanted to protest that by kneeling for the national anthem. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, back in 2016, she was against his protest. She said that it was um, that it was disrespectful. She called him dumb. She said he, he was uneducated because he didn't realize that uh, he was very blessed to live in a country that uh, people had died for the freedoms that he enjoys now. So Katie Couric did this interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg where she said these things. And then Katie Couric was afraid that it was going to make Ruth Bader Ginsburg look bad if she actually reported Ruth Bader Ginsburg's honest opinion. So Katie Couric edited some of the more explosive quotes out uh, of Ginsburg's answers in that interview. And now Katie Couric has written a book, and it still is not released, but some more details have come out that I wanted to share today. So she's written a book where she tells this whole story. She just admits... Oh, hey, yeah, I haven't really been a journalist for a while. I've been an activist for the Democratic Party. And uh, I and she's like, I just looked at RBG as this, this icon, this saint of the Democratic Party. And so I did not want to make her look bad. So I <laughs> changed some of her quotes. So, I mean, she just writes this book and openly admits she doesn't even try to tell you the truth. She's openly dishonest is what I characterized it as in the last program. She's just openly dishonest. And she just, I guess, expects everyone to be okay with that. Sadly, too many Americans are okay with that. They would just rather, I guess, be told what they want to hear. And they wouldn't want to have anything come out that would disagree with, um, that would show Ruth Bader Ginsburg disagreeing with their modern narrative on, on race and all that. So anyway, Katie Couric deleted some of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quotes out of the, the interview that she did with her. Okay, so in, here's some more information on that book. Because I talked about all that in the last thing. But here's, here's some more information coming out in her book. That Couric recalls asking two colleagues, one of them was New York Times columnist David Brooks, for their advice on how to handle this situation. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said these things that could make her unpopular. Should I report them? Should I report her honest opinion? Or should I protect her? 
you know, she asked this. And then and the New York Times columnist is like, oh, yeah, you want to delete those remarks from Ginsburg because this was this is what he said in quotes about Ginsburg. She's elderly and probably didn't fully understand the question. <laughs> so this New York Times columnist and Katie Couric thought they needed to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of her of her being elderly and therefore unable to understand the question. <laughs> now, this was just a very simple question. Everyone in the, you know, in the, everyone in America was aware of what was going on with Colin Kaepernick. You know, people had an awareness of the situation, why he was kneeling. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, from her answer, demonstrated she had a complete understanding of what his position was and what was going on in society at large at that time. Like, actually, from her answer, she I thought she gave, I, I agreed with her answer in 2016 that he was just dumb and being disrespectful. I totally agree with that. I think she had a good handle of the situation. But here's the thing. The New York Times columnist and Katie Couric, they just thought she was too elderly and didn't fully understand the question. They, they think she didn't understand what was going on, so they just deleted her quotes. Here's what I would say. If a Supreme Court justice is too old to understand current events and to understand a simple question like that, if she's too elderly to, to figure all that out, shouldn't that be a major headline? Oh my gosh, we talked to the Supreme Court justice and she's just too elderly, too old to understand what's going on. That should have been their headline if they were real journalists. I mean, if they weren't just activists for the Democratic Party. And I guess the PR campaign for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if they weren't just her spin doctors and activists, if they were actual journalists, that should have been the major story. That should have been the headline. Look at the Supreme Court justice. She's too old to get it. You know, if that's what they thought, why didn't they report on that? <laughs> and, and we know the answer. It's because they, like Katie Couric admits, she was just fan, she was fangirling. She is no longer a journalist, honestly. We should not refer to her as any kind of journalist. Hasn't been one for a while, apparently. She's openly an activist and dishonest. And uh, and apparently she's not a journalist enough to even know what the real headline is because she believes Ruth Bader Ginsburg was too old to even understand the, the situation going on with Colin Kaepernick. And, so, and that's what the New York Times columnist also said. No surprise there. So anyway... Um, I just wanted to give a little update on that because her book hasn't even released yet, but just a little bit more has leaked out about what's in her book. And it's like all, you know, this is honestly just exposing what has been, what's been obvious to us for some time that the, the journalists aren't really trying to tell you the truth, uh, that they're, they're just activists. That's really all they are anymore. Okay. Story number three for this week. This is in the Washington post. This is a headline. Um, it's a story about a zookeeper, and he's black. And so here's the headline. Zookeeping isn't common in the black community. This black zookeeper wants to change that. Yes, they're running a story about how zookeeping is racist, I guess, because they don't call it racist. But I mean, I guess they're they're trying to imply that there's just not enough black zookeepers out there in the world. And uh, here's here's why I mentioned this. This is a really dumb little story. I mean, I don't know. When I think of a zookeeper, I don't think of any race being attached to that in the first place. Anyway, I don't I don't know anyone who does. I don't really th- think about zookeeping in general. When I typed in 
Zookeeper to look up this story. Like this was the only, I had never typed the word Zookeeper into my computer before because this is just not a major thing with people. But the Washington Post, which ever since Black Lives Matter, all that erupted again last year, every week, everything's just always, there's always something that they're finding that's racist. There's always something they're finding that's white supremacist. You can really tell they are scratching the bottom of the barrel now that they're going after racial disparities among zookeepers. And so there's a story in there about a black zookeeper who wants to change the public perception of what zookeeping is. And this is just part, I'm only mentioning this because I'm, th- there might be not be anything in the article itself that's actually fake, but it's fake news because it's part of this concentrated effort to convince Americans that America is so racist, it's already infiltrated down into zookeeping. You know, that's just how racist America apparently is. And that's just this whole campaign in the media is to convince Americans that, I mean, this is how racist and white supremacist our country is. Can't even be a zookeeper if you're black here in this so-called free country. That's in the Washington Post for this week. And uh, I just I just mentioned that because it's it's just a microcosm just a small little picture of what's really going on in society at large. Okay, so I'm going to do things a little bit differently on today's program. Uh, I normally go through five or six or seven different stories that are going on and comment on, you know, why they are uh, fake news. And then I do something called Beyond the Headline. And that's where I just dig a little bit deeper into one news story. And I usually do that at the end. I'm going to go ahead and do that now because... The rest of the articles I want to look at in a few minutes, the rest of them, they all just tie in together. They all really go together well. So I'm going to get I'm going to get to a few more headlines in a few minutes, but I want to go ahead and do our beyond the headlines segment now. And I just want to I just want to talk about uh, I just want to talk about something I saw again in the Washington Post. Our beyond the headline this week comes from the Washington Post. Um, when I turn on my computer at my job, the homepage I don't know. It's just some homepage that came with the browser. They always have this, like, I think it's like MSN. They always have this news ticker thing. They're pretty prominent on the page. And sometimes I cycle through it just to see what's going on today. And so anyway, it linked to this this story in the Washington Post. Um, It identifies itself as an article. Although... I I would not consider it an article. I would consider it like a column piece. Let me tell you the headline. Trump wanted to slash the federal government, but federal agencies are doing just fine. Okay, so the first thing I just want to say about this, Donald Trump has not been president for 10 months, okay, because we're in October, so he hasn't been president since January, okay? So nine or 10 months, he has not been president. Why is the Washington Post still running articles about the dangers of Trump? You know, it's like, uh, right now, we, we have a different president, we have a crisis at the border. We have Americans stranded in Afghanistan. We have a coronavirus pandemic going on, which I don't really need to see another fake news headline about that. But there are actually other things going on in the past nine months that they could be talking about. But honestly, they don't want to talk about all about We have a supply chain crisis right now that things are disappearing off store shelves because they're, they're not getting restocked on store shelves. Uh, inflation is rising. They have all this other stuff going on they could talk about. No, the Washington Post wants you to just still think about how bad Trump apparently was, even though we didn't have a lot of these problems when he was president. 
But they, they want to talk about how bad he was. And so this is a one of those reaching headlines. And I'll read it to you again. Trump wanted to slash the federal government, but federal agencies are doing just fine. Now, here's the thing. That headline there is two sentences that do not really contradict. Now, it's implied that they contradict because you see the word but in there. So you imply that there should be some kind of disparity between those two different ideas. That one, Trump wanted to slash the federal government, but two, federal agencies are doing just fine. Okay, yeah, there, that, that implies that there's some kind of um, conf- conflict between those two statements. Okay, that's actually not true. Yes, Trump did want to slash the federal government. He thought that there were a lot of federal agencies that were overreaching. So when it says, but federal agencies are doing just fine, that wasn't the problem that Trump had with the federal agencies. He didn't want to slash them because they were ineffective. He wanted to slash them because they were too effective. They were going too far. They were putting regulations, which are just basically laws. They were putting regulations on people and businesses all over the country that were going overboard when laws should be passed by the Congress and then signed by the president. Instead, we had all these federal agencies just dictating what the rest of the country should do, and they had no real accountability. They didn't have as, uh, they were going beyond the boundaries of what they were supposed to be doing. Look at what the CDC has tried to get away with over the past you know year and a half in the coronavirus pandemic, that they're trying to put eviction moratoriums on uh, landlords and all that kind of stuff. And these federal agencies are just going far beyond what they were instituted to do. So yes, Trump wanted to rein some of that in. Frankly, I don't think he did enough, which is kind of what this article is saying too, that he didn't really go that far to rein them in. I think he should have done more to, to rein them in. But that's what this headline here is asserting. Trump wanted to slash the federal government, but federal agencies are doing just fine. So that's, that's just the headline right there. I just want to mention that. It's, it is throwing out two different ideas as if there's some kind of conflict there. There honestly is no conflict. So the, but the headline's trying to be dishonest because it's trying to make Trump look like this bad guy who just wanted to take a, a machete to the federal agencies uh, because they were, uh, maybe because they were trying to frame it as if Trump thought the federal agencies were not fine. Um, it just depends on who you ask when it comes to whether or not they were doing fine. They were they were running effectively. I mean, they are doing fine as far as they were doing what they were supposed to do. The problem is they were going beyond that, which is why Trump wanted... He did put in one good uh, law. He said that for every regulation, new regulation that a government agency wants to put out, it has to take away two regulations. They have to take away two if they want to add one. I like that rule because that deregulates the country and opens up the economy a bit more. And the economy did very good under Trump. But honestly, I think he should have done more. So this this news story, and I'll just go through a few parts of it. It's wanting to assert that Trump was just dangerous to the federal government because he wanted to slash so much of it, but, the, but they're all doing actually just fine. And here's what it says. Even before you get into the article, it says, editor's note, this article is part of a series on current challenges. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. This is not an article, and here's how I define an article. An article is objective reporting. I went to uh, j- journalism school. I went to I went to college. I have a degree in mass communications. I have a degree in journalism. The word article has a meaning. An article is a news story, and it's objective. It tells you about something that's going on. Um, or an, an article can be like a personality profile type of thing. But I mean, there, an article is objective reporting. 
An article is going to tell you the facts of what's going on. If you want to put opinion into it, then it becomes, it becomes a couple different things. If you want to put opinion in it, it becomes a column. Okay, a column is written by a, a columnist. It's someone's opinion. That's, you know, fine to do if you mark it as a column. Sometimes opinion pieces are called editorials. And, uh, or an op-ed stands for opinion editorial. So, because it has opinion in it. So you don't call it an article anymore if you're putting opinion in it. Well, what I noticed the news media doing a lot is they were really blurring the lines in what is an article versus what is a column or an editorial. They're not just being clear anymore. So this so-called article, I can't call it an article, but I mean, this is a, this is a very opinion-heavy piece. It should be labeled as a column. And on it, if they wanted to say this was just a column, I wouldn't even be talking about it today because it, it'd just be a column. You know, it'd just be an opinion piece. But what, 10 years ago, when I was in college, we didn't take something that was a column and call it an article because that would have just confused people. An article is an objective, objective piece of news. So this identifies itself as an article on current challenges facing the federal bureaucracy. bureaucracy. It's written by someone named David Lewis. Definitely not an article by, by my definition that I learned in college. And I don't, it wouldn't be an article by Washington's Post definition if they were being straightforward about it. But I think the news media is really trying to bl blur the lines here on what's article and what's opinion, because then they can stick opinion in everything and you know they don't have to be super clear about what kind of reporting they're doing. Here's a line from this so-called article. Just a line, just, just kind of thrown in here. Okay, it said... Civil servants are the last defense against a lawless president. It's no wonder Trump didn't trust them. You know, they just they just say basically Trump was a lawless president, okay? They just throw that in there that he was a lawless president. Now, is that objective reporting to you to refer to the to the former president just offhandedly as a lawless president? You know, to, and when we say he was lawless, okay, Trump was impeached multiple times. He he was and let me just make this point about impeachment. It is a constitutional process that is supposed to be done in the case of high crimes or misdemeanors. That's when impeachment is supposed to be done. High crimes and misdemeanors. It says that in our Constitution. When Trump was impeached, any of the times he was impeached, they alleged zero crimes, zero misdemeanors, none. You can read, I've read them myself. You can go read them yourself. No crimes, no misdemeanors. The articles of impeachment against Donald Trump that were voted on and narrowly passed basically along party lines in the House of Representatives and then went to the Senate, they allege no crimes and no misdemeanors, yet he was impeached anyway. And they want to call Trump lawless. Okay, well, if you're saying he was lawless, what law did he break? <laughs> you know, and how come he wasn't impeached for breaking any laws? They were impeached for, they had these vague, uh, vague, standard of abuse of power. You know, they said he had an abuse of power and that, but that there's no law that says anything about abuse of power. It's just a vague, there's no statute or anything that he broke. It was just what they wanted to slap on it. And they called it abuse of power. And, uh, what was the other one? Um, obstruction of Congress, which again is not, there's no law against obstruction of Congress. There's obstruction of justice, but they couldn't say he did obstruction of justice. That would be breaking a law, but he didn't do that. So they called it obstruction of Congress. And so they they impeached Donald Trump multiple times for high crimes and misdemeanors that were not crimes or misdemeanors. And then they just refer to him 
you know, a year later as a lawless president. Yeah, whatever. Okay, and then it says also um, in this article, our findings from 2020 suggest that federal agencies fare relatively well even after the Trump administration. Okay, well, yeah. Like, Trump failed to rein in the administrative state. He should have done more. And then here's another a line from the article. For all the concern about the Trump presidency and its effects on the administrative state, our data suggests that federal agencies are just as healthy as large private sector organizations on many dimensions. Now, let me just go back to the beginning of that sentence. For all the concern about the Trump presidency and its effects on the administrative state. Well, who's concerned? <laughs> who's concerned? The concern was media generated before. You know, the, the concern about the Trump presidency, well, it was the media telling us to be concerned. They were overreacting to every little thing that Trump did. So it was all media-generated concern. And now the media is telling you, well, don't you see, you had nothing to worry about. Why were you so concerned about that? Why were you so concerned about this thing that we told you to be concerned about? You know, it's just absolutely stupid. So there you go. That's the Washington Post this week. That's your beyond the headline, this little story about Trump versus the administrative state which uh, is just trying to give you all these implications that are not, they didn't really have a basis in reality, as we saw. Okay, I want to go through, uh, probably quickly, because I'm running a little bit longer than I meant to today, but I want to go through some of, uh, a few more headlines. And before I close down later, I do want to just go ahead and mention this here. If you want to get in touch with the fake news, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast, send us an email to fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. And listen, if you see some fake news, send it our way. If you get it to us first, you'll get credit for it on the next program. If you let us know about fake news that's going on uh, around the world in our in our society here in America, uh, we'd love to keep our finger on that. So if you let us know about something, if you let us know first, we'll give you credit for it. And also I'll mention this. We're on Twitter if you want to stay in touch throughout the week. Look for us at Fake News Weekly. I changed the handle on Twitter because it was Pod Fake News before, and I thought, well, we're a weekly podcast, so this might be a better handle. Fake News Weekly, that's where you can find us on Twitter. And also, I got my hard copy dictionary this week. As I mentioned, I was ordering in my last program, but after today's program, you're probably going to be encouraging me to get a thesaurus next because there is a particular word that I'm going to use several times. Bullying. It's the favorite tactic of the political left and Over the past 15 years, it's become the favored tactic of the news media as well, who do the Democratic Party's public relations, as a Democratic politician is going to admit on this program in just a few minutes. But let me take you on a little trip through history. In 1973, homosexual activists wanted to get homosexuality unlisted as a psychiatric illness and reclassified as normal behavior. In order to accomplish this, they began disrupting meetings of the American Psychiatric Association. At one time, they grabbed a microphone and shouted into it, Psychiatry is the enemy incarnate. Psychiatry has waged a relentless war of extermination against us. You may take this as a declaration of war against you. We're rejecting you all as our owners. What did they do in that short statement? They played the victim. They claimed they were being exterminated. They claimed there was a war going on and that psychiatrists were their enemies. What was the result of all this? Well, the American Psychiatric Association changed its stance on homosexuality as a mental illness. They did not do this on the basis of scientific data or empirical studies. In fact, their research at that time said the opposite. They didn't give in on the basis of civil dialogue, conversation, back-and-forth communication. They didn't come to a compromise, middle ground, or agreement on any facts. 
In order to make peace with the gay community, they gave in so that the homosexual activists would leave them alone. Shame, ridicule, intimidation, bullying. It all worked perfectly for the radical left of the 70s. They didn't change in the 80s. They didn't change in the 90s. And why would they ever change tactics that worked so well for them? And why would they change now that they've taken over the educational institutions, or Hollywood, or the newsrooms of America? Bullying is the tactic, and bullying gets the job done. And now that the American press has become so liberal that it's basically a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party, you see the bullying tactics on the front page of every news website and in every social media news feed. So for our fourth through seventh news items of today, I just want to share with you a large number of headlines, and they all demonstrate the relentless bullying of the news media until everyone just gives them what they want. And so the first one I want to point out here is about this comedian, Dave Chappelle. I don't know much about Dave Chappelle. My familiarity with Dave Chappelle is really just from two things from when I was a teenager. One was the, the Rick James skit he did on The Chappelle Show. I remember seeing that when I was younger. It was hilarious. It was super funny. And also Undercover Brother. He's a side character in that movie. Again, super funny. I only know of Dave Chappelle from two places. Both of them, hilarious. But I don't really get into comedians a whole lot. I don't just I just don't like to sit and watch a comedian tell jokes for an hour and a half. Like I just get tired of it, <laughs> even if it's funny. I just, I don't know. I, just, I need that kind of stuff in shorter spurts. So I'm not someone who gets into watching comedians and I can do it for, for 10 minutes maybe, but then I'm, I get bored. I need a story. I need to get into something else. So I'm not, I'm not like a big Dave Chappelle fan. I only know of him from a couple places in both places. He was pretty funny, but you know, comedians tend to be very vulgar and, and profane and I don't need to fill my head with that. So I don't just watch comedians, you know, regularly. So anyway, Netflix did this special with Dave Chappelle and Dave Chappelle just made a few I think I mentioned this on the last program. There was something about it. Uh, he just made a few biologically accurate statements about sex and gender. And this got the transgender community very riled up. And he was just kidding around. It's like, well, with a comedian, you can't always take them so literally because they are joking around a lot. He, he might be considered, he could probably consider himself, you know, left-wing, um, sympathetic to the LGBT lobby and all that. But the fact is he made a few jokes about them and they got super offended. And it's not just that the LGBT activists or community is offended and upset about it. The news media comes to bat for them. If you get on social media and see what's going on in the news, or if you get on um, a news website, all you're going to see is negative headlines about Dave Chappelle on Yahoo News. Dave Chappelle's Netflix special should be pulled on Deadline. Dave Chappelle, not the cause, but a symptom of transphobia. NBC News. Netflix's Ted Sarandos addresses Dave Chappelle fallout in quotes, I screwed up. In GQ magazine, it just says, Dave Chappelle's betrayal. CNN had a couple headlines. Netflix made a mess of the Dave Chappelle controversy. It's a crisis of Netflix's own making. And then another one from CNN. Dave Chappelle insulted another audience no one mentions. And I didn't even click on it, so I don't know who it is either. So all I'm saying is this. The media goes to bat for whatever the Democratic Party, or in this case, the LGBT activists, whatever they want, the media just starts running a series of headlines, and you can just see it. It's so obvious what they're doing. 
They're trying to bully, in this case, Dave Chappelle, and bully Netflix into pulling his special down because they say this is going to help, you know, their friends in the LGBT community. So it's it's almost like a coordinated, it's not really, I don't think it's professionally coordinated, like that there's some behind the scenes person telling them to do this. I don't think that. I think they're just all on the same page. Oh, Dave Chappelle made fun of transgender people. So we all need to run some negative headlines about him. And they're just going to, they've been doing that. I, I saw it I mentioned a couple times this week. There's been more negative news coverage of Dave Chappelle in the past three weeks than there was over Afghanistan back in like August when that was a major story in the news about the Americans being left behind there. There's, there was more news, negative news coverage about Dave Chappelle making some jokes than there was about the Biden administration over the way that they disastrously pulled out of the war in Afghanistan. I don't know that for a fact. That'd be really hard to prove statistically. I've just seen that mentioned a few times this week that there's been more news cycles about Dave Chappelle. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's because the, the media is not going to want to focus on something that makes a Democrat look bad. But they want to go after people who they see as an enemy to Democrat causes, which in this week, this week, it's Dave Chappelle. Here's another one this week that's that's been in the getting a lot of the, the, the flack in the headlines. Joe Manchin, he's a senator from West Virginia. He is a Democrat senator, but he's not going along with a few different bills that Joe Biden is wanting to sign into law. He's not wanting to go along with all of it because he doesn't think it represents the interests of his home state of West Virginia very well. He thinks it's reckless government spending. And so he's he has not signed on to it like the rest of the Democrats have. And they really need his vote in order to pass this thing. So in order to pressure Joe Manchin into capitulating to the Democrat agenda, there has just been a series over the past few weeks of negative news headlines about Joe Manchin. If you weren't someone who's aware of what all is going on in the world all the time, and that's what this podcast is trying to do, help you be more aware of all these things, you might not realize why there's all these negative news headlines about Joe Manchin. You might think, wow, this guy must be some kind of jerk. What did this Joe Manchin guy do that was so deadly and dangerous and makes him so distasteful to the media? What did he do? Well, all he did was not agree with all the rest of the Democrats on what they wanted to do. <laughs> he instead is joining the majority of senators in the Senate and opposing some of these bills. He's, he's doing what the majority wants to do instead of doing what Joe Biden wants to do. And since the media is on Joe Biden's side, here's the kind of headlines they're going to run about Joe Manchin from New York Times. History will not be kind to Senator Joe Manchin. Here's one from grist.org. The U.S. was on the verge of passing real climate policy. Then Manchin happened. Here's one as reported on Newsbusters. It says, on MSNBC, Boston Globe columnist rips Dirty Coal Joe Manchin. Dirty Coal Joe is the nickname they gave him. And then in peoplesworld.org, Manchin, who pockets $500,000 per year from dirty coal, kills critical Biden climate deal. <laughs> in the headline, they just call it dirty coal. Not just coal. No, it's it's dirty coal. It's where Joe Manchin gets all that money. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Joe Manchin represents an Appalachian state. There is a lot of coal-related work that goes on in Appalachia. Joe Manchin is a senator from West Virginia. So it's his job in the United States Senate to represent West Virginians. That is the whole point of the Senate. That's why we have two senators from every state. That's why we have representatives from every state. It's to represent the people of that state. So there's a lot of coal jobs going on in West Virginia. 
So it makes perfect sense that Joe Manchin, as a representative of West Virginia, is going to do what's best for the people in West Virginia. But the Democrats are going nuts about that. (laughs) They say, no, you need to represent what the rest of us want to do, which again doesn't represent the whole country. Joe Manchin's siding with the majority of the senators on this. But the Democrats say, no, you shouldn't be representing West Virginia. You should just be doing what we want you to do. (laughs) You need to represent Joe Biden. When Joe Manchin's really just doing what his job is. Doing his job well, apparently, by representing West Virginia. Here's something else that I always find interesting about how Democrats will slander Republicans. They always want to say that Republicans are paid off, that all their positions on different um, political issues come from who's putting money in their pocket. Like mentioned in this headline, it says, who pockets 500000 a year from dirty coal. And, you know, when there's a, a Republican stand up for the Second Amendment, when they stand up for gun rights, I always just see this slander. Oh, those Republicans, they're just saying that because they're paid by the NRA. Well, why don't they ever just consider for a minute that maybe Republicans, or Joe Manchin in this case, maybe they're voting in alignment with what they actually believe. Maybe Joe Manchin actually believes in the coal industry. Maybe they give him money because he defends their jobs, not to force him to defend their jobs, but because he's already going to do that. Maybe Republicans don't believe in the Second Amendment because the NRA gives them money, Maybe the NRA gives them money because they believe in the Second Amendment. You know, I don't, I don't know why that thought doesn't cross their heads. I don't feel that way about Democrats when I see Democrats supporting Planned Parenthood and de- Democrats supporting um, abortion. I don't just conclude, oh, they only think that because Planned Parenthood gives them so many millions of dollars every year. You know, Planned Parenthood does put a lot of money into the pockets of Democrat politicians, a lot more than the NRA gives to Republicans. A lot more money is coming from Planned Parenthood and other pro-abortion organizations toward the Democrat Party. But yet, I don't ever doubt that Democrats are actually pro-choice. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that they're actually pro-choice. I don't think they're just pretending because the Planned Parenthood is going to give them more money. I think that's what they actually think, and that's why Planned Parenthood gives them money. But anyway, it's weird because when Republicans take a stand on an issue, uh, the, the Democrats like to claim, and the news media, obviously, they like to claim that Republicans are just being paid off. I don't, I don't get that really. And I want to say this too, you know, we, when it comes to stuff that's on, yeah, I got this, these stories right here about Joe Manchin. I just saw them on Reddit. I went over to the news tab on Reddit and that's just what keeps coming up on Reddit. All these negative articles about Joe Manchin, because it's part of this media blitz campaign to demonize Joe Manchin and try to vilify him in the eyes of the public, make everyone think he's done some really bad thing when all he's really doing is being a West Virginian representing West Virginia. And so I know some people are going to say this. Oh, it's not the media throwing those articles to you. It's just the algorithms on Reddit. You know, the algorithms and the algorithms, all these social media companies, they're just throwing out the headlines. It's not the social media company or even the media only putting these headlines in front of you. It's just the algorithms doing it. Really? It is pretty convenient to me how the algorithms, they always show pro-democratic content (laughs) you know like when it comes to reddit on reddit i've liked several pages or joined the groups or whatever you call it pages on reddit i like zero liberal pages on reddit if i even comment on a post from a liberal page i'll get banned off of it by the moderators of that page but yet when i go on reddit all i see are news stories that have liberal biases never a news story with a conservative bias so i don't see how the the algorithms could be giving me this I think it's just the social media companies working in tandem 
with the news media who are working in tandem with the Democrat Party to silence, intimidate, shame, bully anyone that they disagree with. This week, it's Joe Manchin and Dave Chappelle and also Facebook. I want to mention this because we've been following the Facebook controversy the past few weeks. And again, I just want to show you how they're how they're bullying Facebook in the media. Here's a headline from morningconsult.com. Facebook's whistleblower said the company does too little to protect users. Most of the public agrees. Oh, wow, this is telling you most of the public is anti-Facebook. Most of the public is on Facebook. But this headline wants you to know most of the public is anti-Facebook. And from thenation.com, Mark Zuckerberg knows exactly how bad Facebook is. Subhead, whistleblower testimony proves the social media giant is harmful and dishonest and can't be trusted to regulate itself. Again, they're just bullying Mark Zuckerberg all over the news media, putting public pressure on him to do what the Democrats want. And frankly, I don't like Mark Zuckerberg much either. I don't like him because I think he's given in to the media and the Democrats like too often already in the past. I remember like 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I guess, my one of my favorite movies, The Social Network. I love that movie. And that's a movie about the origins of Facebook. I find it fascinating. I love that film. And I remember when it came out, Mark Zuckerberg was upset about the movie because he said that he thought that the portrayal of him by Jesse Eisenberg in that movie and the way it was written by Aaron Sorkin, you know, he thought that uh, it was unfair and it made him look bad and all this stuff. (laughs) To be honest, I like the movie version of Mark Zuckerberg a lot more than the real life version of Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I think that movie only would have helped his his public uh, persona. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg, the guy, very much. I really don't. But I can tell what the media is doing when they run all these headlines about him trying to make him look bad. They're trying to make him censor conservative content on their platform so that Republicans will not win as many elections in the future. They're just trying to get him to censor conservatives. And it might work. That's why we're following this. We're going to see if it works. Here's another headline. This one's from Slate.com. I couldn't care less what Slate says, but... Again, this is just what Reddit, when you get on Reddit, this is what they want to throw at you. Facebook banned me for life because I help people use it less. I don't know what that article is all about. I don't care. I really don't, it doesn't really matter. It's just another negative headline about Facebook at a time when that's why they're running is whatever they can think of to make Facebook look bad. That's what they're going to put out. That's what Reddit's algorithms are going to promote. Um, you remember last week we were talking about that Democrats have already given away their plans. They're telling Facebook, we want you to change the way you curate news content and conservative content is what they mean. We want you to change that before the 2022 elections or we're going to break up Facebook. Elizabeth Warren said that on The View last week. She called it Stop the Steal in 2022. That's what she was calling it. Stop the Steal for 2022. She said the real steal is going to happen in 2022 if Facebook doesn't change the way it's doing things now. Now, just think about this for a minute. You can be censored on social media if you try to say that the 2020 election was stolen. I'm not claiming it was stolen. Like, I'm not claiming that the voting machines were hacked or something like that. I'm not even saying that. But if you go on on a social media and try to say that, like Donald Trump was doing, they'll kick you off of social media for saying that. And they'll censor you on social media if you say that the last election was stolen. But here's Elizabeth Warren. She's saying if we have another election in 2022, under the rules we have now, 
under the rules we just had last year, if we have another election under those same rules, that one is going to be stolen. <laughs> and she's allowed to get away with saying that because it, it always goes to whatever favors the Democrats. Since they won in 2020, you're not allowed to say that one was stolen. But if we have another election in two years after that, under the exact same rules, it is okay to say that one's stolen even before it happens, <laughs> you know, because there's different rules for Democrats than there are for everyone else. So she said, stop the steal for next year. So anyway, all these, all these headlines, they're always going to be favorable to the Democrat Party and their interests. They're always going to go against whoever is hurting the Democratic Party interests. And for our seventh and final story for today, I'll just mention this from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. She was complaining that there's not enough public support for President Joe Biden's $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation plan. You know, she wants more of the public to be behind it. She wants more of the public to be getting mad at Joe, Joe Manchin so they can pass this massive spending bill. So she says the public is not supporting this $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill well enough. Here is what she said. This was reported in the New York Post. I'm not saying the New York Post did anything dishonest. I'm just telling you what they reported here. This is what Nancy Pelosi said. Well, I thank you all talking to the media. Talking to the media. Well, I thank you all could do a better job of selling it, to be very frank with you. She says the media needs to sell this idea of the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, which is just this massive spending blowout that the Democrats want to do right now that Joe Manchin is not going along with. She says to the media, I think you all could do a better job selling it. Now, let me just ask you a question. Why would someone say that to the media? Because they think it's the media's job to sell Democrat ideas to the public. She expects them to do that. And here's the thing. She just doesn't understand you can't sell a $3.5 trillion idea to the public. Not that you can't get the public to ever go along with something like that, but there's so many things in the bill. There's so much going on there. I mean, that's something the media can't sell. You can't sell something with that many ideas. They need a simpler idea if you're going to sell something to the public. So it's not working. But she's blaming the media. She says it's the media's job to sell this idea to the public. That you got to get the media. The media is supposed to get the public to support this thing because that's how Democrats see the news media. What I'm telling you today about how the media is just public relations for the Democrat Party, that's not some wacky conspiracy theory. This is obviously what the Democratic politicians also believe. That's why the media does exactly what the Democrats do and bullies people into going along with whatever the Democrats want. When you have a philosophy of bullying to get your way, then all you're going to have on your side are bullies and cowards. Think about it. You're either going to be a bully, someone who wants to use those tactics of shame, intimidation, and ridicule against those who don't think like you, or you're going to be a coward. That means that, yes, you went over to their side because you didn't want one of those labels that they're so desperate to slap on you. If you're against critical race theory being taught in schools, or if you're against Black Lives Matter, or if you didn't vote for Obama, or if you denied their still unproven fiction of systemic racism, they'll call you a racist. They'll call you a white supremacist. If you wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton, they'll call you a sexist. If you disagree with the philosophy and worldview of Muslims, they'll call you Islamophobic. If you think homosexual behavior is immoral or if you're against gay marriage, they'll call you intolerant, homophobic, bigoted. If you're against transgender indoctrination, if you're against schools teaching your kids about sexuality and gender, 
You're called transphobic. If you're against socialism and communism, they say you hate poor people. If you're in favor of the Second Amendment rights and freedoms, they say you must want school shootings to happen. If you don't want to wear a mask and get a vaccine and then get a vaccine booster and then stay locked in your house for six months with no source of income, then you just must want old people to die. They have an insult prepared for any position you could take that doesn't just bow down and give them what they want. And let's just face it, many people would rather give in to them than stand up to the bullies. And if you can't stand up for your principles or if, if you change your principles as soon as holding them gets a little hard or costs you something, that makes you a coward. And that's what the Democrats are, nothing but bullies and cowards. That's what their media henchmen are, nothing but bullies and cowards. So to everyone on the left in the mainstream news media, okay, congratulations, you can have them. You can have the cowards. But that leaves the rest of us in a pretty good spot. Because at this point, if you haven't bought into their propaganda, that leaves the rest of us as the strong ones, the people who can see through their lies. That leaves us in pretty good company. I'd rather not be on a team with cowards and bullies. I'd rather be with you. This has been Luke Taylor with Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And remember, if you hear this week that Dave Chappelle is not funny, that's just fake news. <laughs>